Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. Are there a couple of measurables or things you would look at? Let's say if it's a kid that's going to be going or, or playing in college, like, are there a couple of things like, hey, I would want to look at this in terms of if they have what it takes to take it to the next level? Um, obviously, putting and short game, those are some of the things that we look for, you know, number of putts. Uh, per round of average, greens hit. You know, there's definitely some things. Uh, and then obviously there's score. You know, so there's there's a lot of things. But I think the two major things, me from when I coached college golf, what I looked for was the coachability of the player and then their power and speed. This podcast is brought to you by LiveMomentous.com. Leading the way in human performance is Live Momentous. For listening today, You get a discount at checkout. Enter the code DRB20. That's DRB, the number 20, for 20% off your order. Live momentous. Optimize, perform, recover. This is episode 132 of the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like golf episodes specifically when it comes to mental toughness, then check out our recent episodes, 127 with Kaylin Henderson, episode 126 with Adam Shank, episode 124 with Annabelle Pancake, and then episode 111 with with pro jock Tim Tucker. It's great episodes as well. I'm excited about our guest today because we've been friends for a few years. Our guest today is a PGA professional and founder of Elevation Golf Academy. They have locations in Chicago, Indianapolis. He served as head golf coach at university level, as well as was a PGA professional at Olympia Fields, Medina, Desert Mountain, among others. Our guest today is good friend Mike Mandakis. Mike, bro, how are you, sir? Morning, Dr. Bell. How are you? Great, man. Thanks for taking the time, joining us. Glad we got to do this. I mean, why don't, why don't we start with this, man? Tell me about, uh, you know, what, what's it been like being a Chicago sports fan past uh, couple oh, years, man. I guess. It's been a rough couple of years here in Chicago, but um, hopefully some bright things ahead uh, on the NFL landscape obviously the bears have not been not been very good uh coaching quarterback the whole the whole system is uh is going to change here soon um now are, you down with, are you down with justin fields though no really no yeah yeah i'd take yeah, him unfortunately <laughs> regardless how, how good a player he is the system just kind of washed him up just like it has a number of quarterbacks um you know so it just needs a reset you know, maybe yeah. Justin Fields is a part of that. Maybe he's not. Uh, maybe we bring in a new quarterback. But the whole thing, the whole landscape, the whole operation just needs to change. It needs some new direction. And um, it's not going to happen on the ownership level. So it's got to happen in the executive offices, down to the coaching staff, down to the players. So, um, yeah, we're hopeful that that change is coming. But do you like Justin Fields? I mean, do you think Justin Fields could be a successful NFL quarterback? He's an, un- he's an unbelievable athlete, and yeah. I think in the right system with the right protection, he could be uh, a very good quarterback. Uh, I don't think that, that the scheme right now uh, warrants that with the Bears, um, but scheme might change 
the play calling and everything might change. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't rule that out, but I think he's got a spot on an NFL roster. Um, and uh, with the right, with the right scheme and the right coaching, I think he's got an opportunity. Yeah, that's fair, man. You know, the backup quarterback went to uh, my university, Shepherd university. I did know that. Yeah. Solid, that's impressive man. that's impressive yeah. i thought he did well man backup role hey you know what from he came from very small town very small everything to um starter in the nfl and actually winning a couple games it's pretty impressive and i mean i think like a backup quarterback in the nfl i mean it's not the role that necessarily everybody wants but i mean it's a, it's a good gig to have isn't it they make millions of dollars to sit there and and uh not take any hits and uh, sit there with a headset on. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you to come on here because with golf instruction in particular, and I mean, I know we're both excited just because of what COVID did for the game of golf and how, I mean, that just exploded everybody coming into it. Can you talk to us about the model that, that you've created in particular? Yeah, the model really comes down to coaching. And when, when people are successful in helping others, uh, it comes down to a, a good team. And I believe that COVID helped bring a lot of new people, new energy into, into, uh, into golf, which has been great. Um, but really our model, even before that started back, um, you know, from the country club levels down to um, having our own outdoor academy to indoor facilities, but it all comes down to, putting the right team together. And I think that's what we've been, we've been successful with is, you know, surrounding ourselves with, with good people, good, good connections and good partnerships to, um, to establish our, our team. And, um, and what COVID did to bring in more people to us, accessible to us, I think the landscape has changed from, you know, a lot more people playing, but actually a lot more people putting more into the game and um, turning entertainment into performance and, and really driving other ways to get people into, uh, into the game and then also uh, excel at the game as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you have a couple of like ideal avatars that, that come in and, and want to get better at the game. Like if we just start with like the junior level, like walk us through like, hey, what does that process kind of look like? Somebody has been, you know, um, just started out with the game, but they're playing and, and they have that will to get better. Like walk us through like, Hey, what does that development sort of look like? Correct. Yeah. The ideal, the ideal junior that we, that we look for or inherit or however we start working with them, the ideal kid um, plays multiple sports. You know, when we find it, when we see a kid that plays multiple sports, we know that that they're going to develop motor skills and athleticism uh, playing and training in other sports that will be helpful in their development in golf. And um, so that's the opportunity. Now, when we get kids that have not played other sports or are, are not as athletic, they don't have the hand-eye coordination, the foot-eye control, um, those are just kids that we have to work with a little bit more on the motor skill development. So um, either way, we, 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 we like that that junior, we just have to coach them a little bit differently. So ideally, you know, when a kid comes in playing a couple other sports, we know that their time availability might be a little less because they're playing other sports. 
but at the same time, it's okay because they're developing things that will be helpful for them in the future that will be um, beneficial then at the high school level, college level, and then to whatever level they want to play the game. But, um, but really that, that the, the two main things that we look for and how we're going to coach the kid is what is their, their base athleticism and then what is their motor skills and how much have they developed already and, and, and then how can we expand on that uh, to figure out how coachable they are. What sport do you think is like, what athlete do you like to get from, from what kind of sport that's going to come into golf? That's a good question. Uh, I get asked that in seminars and when, when I do uh, public speaking about this, and that's one of the things that parents ask if, if the, the golfer wants to be, if, if kid wants to be a golfer, um, what are other sports, you know, that any of the rotational sport athletes are going to be yeah. beneficial, you know, the baseball and the hockey, you know, tennis, um, but really, it, it comes down to developing good lower body and upper body. Um, and believe it or not, we've had a lot of success with soccer players because of the hip thrust and, um, you know, the, the endurance uh, that, that handles. But then there's the, the little bit of lack of the upper body motor skill that, you know, a baseball player and a soccer player are almost the perfect combination. And, and then you look at hockey. So hockey players really have that hand-eye coordination, the balance and the agility that's going to be important for golf. Um, so, but, but hockey is a very time consuming sport, uh, and takes up a lot of time. Um, so we, we just have less hockey players that are, um, that turn into golf. I mean, there's, there's plenty of kids that play hockey at golf, um, but just they're two very time consuming sports. So, uh, I, I would say that we really enjoy the soccer player because, um, because they develop the lower body agility, balance and everything, and, and the power from the lower body, which is super important as kids develop into, into young adults. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, the soccer players, along with a combination of baseball and hockey are really the, 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 the biggest ones for us. Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website, drrobbell.com, and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. Yeah. How have you seen golf instruction in particular? To last? I mean, again, it's difficult to say, hey, what it was, right? Like back in the day, like back in the day it was 2006, I think, right? Because, I mean, that was when, you know, it was still called social networking. So, like, since that time, let's say since like 2006, 2010, like what has been the biggest changes that you've seen in the game? Like, and I know kind of where you're going with this, but like, Lay it out for us. Like, what have been the biggest changes that you've that you've kind of seen? Yeah, I mean, hands down, technology. You know, technology accessibility to to videos and connectivity to the students has changed everything. Uh, then when you change, then when you add in, golfers are more athletic. They're more uh, they're they're stronger, and they're more powerful. Um, that's where the training element has come in. Um, but overall, the the technology advances with with the clubs and the golf balls has really made a made a difference from how we perform differently. Um, but instruction has changed from the mind from the from the times of of 
really creating one-on-one -on -one technical training. I think it's it's evolved into more of biomechanics. And I think biomechanics is, is something that, that my team, we really specialize in is, is how the body works to get the club to do what we want the club to do to eventually to get the ball to do what the ball is going to do. And when we, when we create that connection and we, when we, those are things that we didn't, we knew about back in the day, like pre 2006 ish, uh, we knew about it, but we couldn't really measure it. And I think nowadays between pressure mats and video and, and all the AI that's out there, uh, we now have the ability to measure how much the body does what the body's doing. We can measure more precisely what the club and the ball are doing. So we've been able to marry that together. And I think we've been, we've become, we have more, um, we have more really attributes to be able to, to measure and to, to teach players. So I think those, you know, there's a lot of things obviously that I just went through, but I think ultimately it's, it's all of the technology that we have to be able to measure and connect with our student that's changed the most. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of like the actual business side, what have been, like what are some of the biggest struggles that you've encountered with entrepreneurship and melding that like with golf instruction and, and the different locations you have across the country? Time. Oh, Time nice. I think is, is, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, not having enough time to see as many clients and students as you, as you have, uh, and the balance between that, because you've got students that want to see you, you know, a couple times a week and then, you know, trying to fit them in. Um, I really think it's the time. I think that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest part. Yeah. Now, how do you do it with, um, people want to come see you, right? Like I want, I want to come see Mike. Like I know I want to come see Mike, but like, how do you meld that with creating the team so people don't think that they're getting a B team? You know what I mean? Like you have capable instructors, but people still kind of, hey, I want to connect with Mike. How, how have you been able to establish that? With like, let's just say if it's just a parent coming to you, we want you, Mike, and when it's like your time availability isn't quite there, how do you do that? Yeah, that's um, that was a struggle at the beginning, you know, a long time ago, um, but it really comes down to promotion and and really uh putting our our other coaches out on a pedestal and and promoting them to 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 create that that understanding that hey you're coming to our elevation golf academy whether it's in chicago indy texas or any of our future locations it's it's what they're getting is is our programming and our expertise that we put years and years and years into developing these you know, strategies and ways to help golfers. Um, so when, when you come into, into Chicago and, and we take a golf lesson, ideally I like to, I like to be the first point of contact for, for our new clients. And from there we can develop uh, a relationship, whether I am the one that's working with them on a weekly basis, monthly basis, um, or one of my other coaches is, but at the end of the day, once, once, we identify and they have trust in our other coaches, then they know that we, regardless if they're seeing me or one of my coaches, it, it's all, it's all a handprint of what we've developed as a team um, to make that happen. So, and we've been successful with that and we've got plenty of clients that I might see once a month, but they see uh, one of my other uh, coaches during that time frame as well. Maybe a couple, they see them weekly, but I come in and see them once a month just to kind of, 
um, kind of see where they're at, see the progress they've made, and then, you know, kind of put together a new, a new program to, um, we, we, we do a lot of things monthly, monthly works mm -hmm. for us because, you know, depend, you know, four weeks of the, of the month, four and a half weeks of the month, we can, we can really develop a program, but then after a four week process, we can make an adjustment and switch to the next month. So that's a lot of our, a lot of our stuff is derived on that. Um, but you know, but it, but it really comes down to, to trust and, and showing off the expertise that my other coaches have. Um, because really we're all in it together and, um, you know, we have different price points because, because of that. Um, but, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's all about helping that player get better. However we can do it. Yeah, no, that's a great point, man. I mean, do you encounter like, Hey, if there was like two common themes of struggles with golfers that they, you know, this is what they usually face. Have, have you encountered that or is it different for everybody? I, I would say there's some very common attributes that people have, um, but ev everyone is different. And that's the whole thing about golf instruction. And, you know, so when we have a new student come in, um, every golfer has struggles. You know, people that play in the PGA Tour, people play in the LPGA Tour, they have, they have struggles. They, they revert back to old tendencies. So th really the first 20 minutes of meeting a new student is that crucial moment for us to identify you know, what do they do good? What do they, what do they not do so good? And once we identify that, then that helps us shape their, uh, how we work with them and how we coach them. Um, but you know, the, the common things is, is the connectivity between hand-eye coordination, you know, and, and I think that, you know, most people, they, they don't develop, they haven't developed a good connection between their body to the club. And most golfers don't have an awareness of, spatial awareness like where their hands are at the top of their swing where how much body rotation do they have and then you know how does that relate to the setup to top of the swing back to impact and finish so um that's i think the biggest struggle when we get someone that says you know i i take a video of them and we say all right how what percentage of your swing did that feel like it was and they always feel like it's shorter than what it is because yeah. their arms their arms outrace their body and so we take a different approach to that. We develop that from the beginning. We try to develop a more connective, uh, connective part so that, that we can relate to that person and they can relate to their swing better than, better than they did when they first started with us. So I, I think that's really the biggest part is, is the biggest struggle. Obviously, the, the biggest result struggle is probably 70% of golfers you know, play a slice or a fade, right? So whether you're righty or lefty, um, most people will have, um, more, they create too much side spin because they're, but they, they don't have body connectivity to the club. So that creates, you know, uh, we call it an out to in swing and it creates a lot of side spin. Um, but that's, you know, usually when that player comes in, the first thing we do is, all right, let's try and get them to spin it the opposite way. And once we do that, then they've, then they've created a feeling difference of what it is. Um, but with technology and videos and everything, it's become a lot easier to be able to to show them what they're doing, you know, on video, give them the data of what they're doing so that now we can, when they're practicing on their own or anything, we can we can make that adjustment. But but really the the hand-eye coordination and the feeling connected with um, what they revert back to as their miss, um, those are really the two main things that, um, that we encounter um, with golfers. So is... 
if feel isn't real? Feel is not real. 90% of the time. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, feel, you know, if I take 10, 10 people in and, and we're trying to feel something and I get them on video and I say, all right, what does that feel like, right? And then I show them, you know, nine out of 10 times, it's, it's not going to connect. You know, that feel, feel is not real. Uh, thing is not apparent. Usually when we first work with our students, and that's our goal is to create um, better feel and real um, connection. And, you know, some people get it quicker than others based on their motor skills and how they how they connect with their golf swing. Um, and then other people struggle with it. And sometimes it's not even, you know, how good a golfer you are. Sometimes it's just, it's just your, your, your visual perspective, how you see things, right eye dominance, left eye dominance, um, how you connect your swing, your your arms to your swing and body and everything. So um, there's no one way that we actually put a fingerprint on it. Okay, well this is this is exactly why or who it is. But um, but I think that's that's the part of it that becomes um, the opportunity for us is to mm -hmm. connect that from the beginning to make things uh, better for them. What do you say to a parent that comes in and it's like, you know, my kid's really good and they want to play on the PJ tour or to say the kid wants to play on the PJ tour, you know, but the parents have kind of married that as well. Um, I mean, I tell parents as nicely as I can, like if you knew what it took to be a professional golfer, like you'd, you'd never sign up for that. Right. Cause they were just looking at maybe the top 20 golfers in the world if that, and saying, that's what I want my son to be like, they're not looking at 127 in the world. And, uh, cause I would take the 127th best surgeon in the world as well. But like, how do you, um, how do you navigate those expectations from like a parent and their kid from when they're young and, and be able to blend that with reality? Yeah. I mean, we, in every sport you face this, right? And any, any, any sport. Yes. But golf's different because, Very. because I'd never, I'd never see kids shooting basketball outside and a parent come up and say, Hey, we're going to see you on the, in, in the NBA. Like you never see that, but it happens all the time in golf. Right. I mean, that's the part that I see that's totally different. I mean, a kid can hit it for, Oh my God, it's good. Kids going to be on a PJ tour when they have no idea. Yeah, no, it, it, definitely happens more in golf. Um, I think because it's an individual sport, there's more of a showcase on each individual in golf. Good point. Um, obviously in, in football, the quarterback is always that person, uh, in baseball, it's the pitcher, you know, so you have that showcase person, but all those other sports, these, these athletes are on a team, right? So they're really only as good as their team around them outside of their individual stats. Um, but in golf, it's, it's, you're the only person right now in high school and college, you're on a team, but, but it's really a, it's a showcase sport where you're, you're only as good as you, as your scores, right? So when you, when we get parents that come in and say in golf, like, Hey, my kid wants to be a PJ tour player. Uh, I think that's one of the things that, you know, for us, it's like, okay, well, the first thing is you have to, you never want to bash their dreams and you never want to, you know, tell them, okay, it's not happening, right? You want them to make that understanding and that you want them to come up to that with that conclusion, 
But what we do is we establish, we say, okay, well, here's what it's going to take to become a PJ tour player. You need to be, you know, you need to be gradually improving at each level. You don't need to be the best junior golfer that's out there. You don't need to be the best high school player or even the best college player. You need to be the best golfer in tournaments and qualifiers that you play in after college or in college so that you're preparing yourself for that level. And once you identify and you tell them, okay, well, is your, does your kid can, do you have, number one, do you have the resources? Resources is a big part of it, you know, resources and, and, you know, practice training golf course availability. I mean, there's, there's a lot that comes along with it. Um, but when you, when you lay it out for them and you tell them, okay, well, here's what the most successful players in this sport have done from a mental training standpoint, physical training aspect, the technical training, they developed the team, you know, they've, they've done all these things. A lot of the, the families or the parents might come to the conclusion like, Hey, that's not feasible for us. Right. Or, you know, most parents are going to give them, give their kids every opportunity they can. And uh, our job is to help, you know, create all the training protocols and, and do all these things um, and let them make the decision if, if, it's going to happen or not happen. Um, but I'd be the first one to, to put someone in their, in their place from an expectation standpoint and say, here's where you are. Here's where you need to be at certain levels. And if you're there, then we're on track. And even if you're not there, well, we have to make up for it in another way. So, um, you know, there, I, I believe there's less and less parents nowadays that, that stay that at least I've come across less. Um, it's more about now it's like, okay, my kid wants to be a college golfer. I think that's more of the safer play for people to say, yeah, they might have in their back, of their mind, they want to be a PJ tour player, but you know, nowadays it's like, okay, my, my kid wants to play division one golf. Right. And I think that's a safer play for people to say out loud. Um, so we, I think we do get less people and less parents, less kids to say, I want to be a PJ tour player, uh, than we did in the past. Are there a couple of measurables or thing you would look at? Let's say if it's a kid that's going to be going or, or playing in college, like, are there a couple of things like, Hey, I would want to look at this in terms of if they have what it takes to take it to the next level. For sure. Yep. Uh, number one thing is coachability. I think that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest key that we look at is how well do they work with their instructor? How well do they work with, uh, their trainer, how well do they work with their high school coach, um, and and then their team around them? Because at that level, they're on a team. So it doesn't matter how good they are. I mean, for some coaches, we'll just take the best player and they figure that you know they'll they'll wing it and they'll make they'll make it work, right? And at certain levels of golf, you can get away with that. But in reality, at the mid-level schools and all that, it really comes down to a good a good environment. So. Um, I think that's an important attribute is, is the coachability of the player. Uh, a couple of the other benchmarks that we look for is speed. You know, in this day and age, it's all about speed. And, you know, we've got some, you know, 110 mile an hour club head speeds are, are, are almost of the norm these days in high school and college golf, uh, you know, and, and something to, to reach for. So that 100 to 110 mile an hour uh, club head speed right now is, is on the, you know, on the higher end, 
Um, but back, you know, 10 years ago, it was like, if you, if you swung it over a hundred miles an hour, you were, you were going to be a college, college golfer. So it just, that, that benchmark just keeps increasing with, with speed and power, um, but power speed, and then put, um, come obviously putting in short game. Those are some of the things that we look for, you know, number of putts, uh, per round of average greens hit, you know, there's definitely some things, uh, and then obviously there's score. You know, so there's there's a lot of things, but I think the two major things me from when I coach college golf, what I looked for was the coachability of the player and then their power and speed. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that, man. With um with your your journey and being a head golf professional and on that track and at some prestigious places, you had a hinge moment that occurred, 2010. Can you talk to us about that transition and what took place during that time? Yeah, it was a, it was a very um, exciting but terrifying time because uh, the landscape of golf and the world in 2008, 2009 really, really changed. I really, I believe it changed golf. And uh, some people were able to capitalize on it and some people weren't. Uh, some people left the golf industry, left the golf business. Um, other people, uh, it helped identify their path and their journey. So for me, you know, working at, you know, a few of the, the clubs, um, three of the biggest clubs in the country, um, uh, working at those facilities, you know, the job, the, the head pro job pre recession time, we'll call it, um, 2009 before that, that job is not the same as it is now. So for me, I fortunately, um, I feel like I had the foresight to kind of see that that job was going to change. And while a lot of people still want to be a head professional and run a country club, um, and there's some unbelievable pros out there that, uh, that still have that role, um, they've been able to adjust their, their daily operations and how they run their club and everything. They've been able to adjust it, and they they still have some of the top jobs in the country. Um, well, I felt like I had one of the best jobs in the country, uh, 2005 to 2009, um, being at Olympia Fields and and being on one of the you know historic country clubs and um, Southside of Chicago. So it didn't get all the the glory that Medina did or some of the other big clubs. But in recent times, you know, we've had some big tournaments there and. Um, and the, the history there was just, was, was unbelievable, but the membership was awesome. Um, but it, it just, the landscape, it was either, I stay down that road and wait until the director of golf were to retire, um, or all the head pro jobs that I was offered at the time, the, I, I never really found anything that was better than what I had. And I knew that I would have had to stick around there at the club until the director of golf retired to be able to take over, you know, the full operation which could have been a couple of years and it could have been, you know, it ended up being about 12 to 15 years. Um, but because of the recession and because of people's uh, 401ks and everything, I feel like pros at the clubs are working longer. So that kind of changed my perspective on what I was going to do. So number one, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to run a business. I always wanted to have a good team around me in whatever I did because I didn't grow up playing golf. So golf was never being a head pro running a, a golf business was never part of my, um, what I grew up wanting to be. Um, but 
you know, that transition for me happened in college, but, but really, you know, that hinge moment happened in, in 2010 when I left Olympia Fields Country Club and probably having one of the best jobs in the country to then opening up my own academy. And it was, it was a tough time financially because, you know, banks weren't lending any money. Um, I had no experience actually owning uh, my own business. So that was kind of my hinge moment. And, um, but I learned a lot through that. So we had a, an outdoor Academy for five years and then property taxes doubled, tripled on us. So, um, we had to, we had to close down the Academy, but which was ended up being a blessing in disguise as well, because we shifted our gear to from a 90% outdoor business to, um, now a, 50 to 60% out indoor business. And then we added our outdoor relationships and partnerships to be able to really create that full, that full operation now year round. So mm -hmm. really that hinge, that hinge moment was, uh, an exciting time, but a terrifying time as well, because I, I put all my, um, all the money that I had saved, um, into, into a dream of, uh, always wanting to be run a business necessarily, but it ended up being in a golf business just because I, I became pretty good at, um, learning how to take care of people and, and being in working at the country clubs I worked at. It also helped me define my role as a golf instructor, club fitter, and, and all the other hats that I, that I try to wear. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that, that time was, was terrifying, but it ended up becoming, you know, blessing in disguise and, and, you know, it's worked out. Yeah. You know, I had a hinge moment in 2011 that I was teaching academia, teaching sports psych, running the program. And then there was an actual moment that I remember about why I left to start my own business. But was there a moment, because I know there were a lot of factors leading up to it, but was there a moment that um, made all the difference? I Yes. I, I remember the moment being I had... I think there were, I had six head pro job opportunities in 2009 and did all the interviews, got offered a couple of the jobs and I was a finalist for a couple of the other jobs. And at that time I was still a little too young to, to take over a big, a big club. Um, but I had the knowledge and experience to do that, but I, my age was just a little too young. So at that point, you know, some of the, some of the bigger clubs I would have liked to work at, they're just like, Hey, you're a finalist. Not sure you're going to get the job, but, um, but it, it was that moment when I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to take a step down here. If I go to a new club and it's going to be a smaller club might be not what I have right now. And, and I kind of saw the opportunity. I was like, okay, well, do I want to, do I really want to do this? But what do I, what do I really want to do? And I wanted to do all of it, but I knew it at these new, as a head pro at some of these other clubs, I couldn't do all the things that I felt like I was good at. So, um, that, that one moment was, was having at least five job opportunities where I could have said, you know what, I'm in, I'm going to take the head pro job here. It was that moment when I had these options but I decided to go the other route because none of the options in the business at the time, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't correspond to what I wanted to do and what I felt like I was good at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, uh, choosing yourself, man, that's a, that's a big play. I love it, man. I love that. Uh, um, well, we wouldn't have been connected without it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. How does the sport of golf, like the sport itself, how does that translate into your entrepreneurship and business? Um, the sport is, uh, fortunately, with all the avenues in golf now and all the resources that we have, technology and, and facilities and everything, you know, between, social media has really created this, uh, this buzz about golf. And, you know, people are realizing they can play young ages, older ages and everything. So I really think that the, the connection to golf and entrepreneurship is, is really about creating, all, is creating opportunity. And fortunately for me, I had an opportunity in my plate and, and I dug in the trenches to, to make, take, that, take the best of that opportunity. And I think that in whatever you do in life, I think it's all about the opportunity you have and what you make of it. And I think as, as an entrepreneur and doing, running your own business, starting your own business, I think you have to, you have to be able to dig in the trenches because you got to be able to know and have the, um, the grit that's involved in that because times are not always going to be good. Right. And so you have to experience the good and the bad, um, or, you know, to developing it from square one so that, uh, so it can really shape you. And I, and I think golf has, because of the opportunity, because of the buzz and how much it's out there now, I just think that there's a lot of opportunity for people within golf entrepreneurial. Um, but then, you know, taking, taking the things that people have been successful with in our sport and it could be another sport, it could be another business, but uh, I think it always comes down to opportunity. And mm -hmm. when, when you see the opportunity, like a lot of people have in, in this sport, in this game, and they, they've, they've really created uh, a new path for them, or they've just re they've, they pivoted um, like I did. And I think that in golf, I think it's just because there's so much out there, there's so much more opportunity for people. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I do what I do because I want to help my play, my, my coaches and my, my other people that are connected to me. I want to help amplify them because if I want to give them all the opportunity that they can, you know, I did all the trench work and, you know, they need to, if they understand that and they see that they're like, well, okay, well, the platform that we've created is for them to be successful. And, you know, maybe they don't have to get down in the trenches like I did, but they can, they can kind of learn from the mistakes that I made to, um, to be successful for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like talk about like being in the trenches and the grit that it takes with business, how that relates to golf. Yeah. Like the actual game. Yeah, no, I mean, the game comes down to all the hours and hours that are behind the scenes, things that you do uh, in a mirror in your bathroom, you know, things that you do in the gym when no one's around, um, the nutritional side of it, um, the books you read, the things that are that you do without other people knowing or seeing um, that that put that go into your success individually and then in sport or in business or whatever it is. Um, I think those are, those are the things there that, um, that, that you can take from that for sure. But in, in how it relates to the golf playing the game is, 
you know, the things you do in, in to develop all these good habits, bad habits, um, taking that to the golf course is learning from your experiences, you know, things you do well, things you don't do well, um, you know, making mistakes in a tournament, you know, and then helping you so that next time you're in that situation, you know what not to do, or you know how to do it better. So you're more successful down the road. I think, I think there's, there's a lot of similarities there in, in starting a business, owning a business that correlate to, um, competitive golf or even just Mm -hmm. recreational golf as well in general. But, um, you always want to get better. And I think that's, that's what, that's how we connect, connect that. You know, a little bit of a shift, but I mean, I know you and your dad were super close in your relationship and when he passed, like, how has that process been for you, you know, losing your dad and being on, you know, through life? Yeah. Um, you know, fortunately I, I, I grew up and had uh, very supportive parents, both mom and dad. Um, they did anything, they, everything they could for us. Um, uh, my mom is, is, uh, my biggest advocate. And my dad was also my biggest advocate when, when he was, when he was alive. Uh, so I had a very good support system. Uh, my mom is, is amazing and she does everything she can. Um, still, um, my dad literally was down in the trenches with me when I was starting my business and, um, moved close to my, close to my, my outdoor Academy. Um, my dad and I spent a lot more time together at that point. Um, we also, we also uh, got under each other's skin a lot more because, uh, you know, we were two stubborn Greek guys that, you know, always thought we were right. Um, so, um, but my dad was uh, through that, through the hinge moment that I had and through my transition in, in business and in golf, um, he was there by my side and we spent a lot of time together uh, through that moment. And then, um, you know, unfortunately when, when cancer hit and, um, you know, unfortunately it was the beginning of COVID. So it was, it was just a totally different landscape for everything. Um, but moved him in with me. And so for the last, uh, six months, uh, he lived with me too and took care of him. And, and so we, you know, growing up, my dad always worked a couple jobs and my mom did as well. Okay. There, there were two hardest working people I knew. And, um, which meant we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. So towards the end of, of his life and, um, through the beginning of my, my business ventures, we were able to spend a lot more time together and, um, you know, and it, and it was great. So through, through that time frame of being able to, uh, spend more time with my dad, it was just, it was very, uh, the support that was there was amazing and it really connected us a little bit further and, and, and now those are some of the, the lasting memories that I have of him is, um, you know, kind of the last few years of his life. So, um, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, you mentioned, and I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that time, um, I'm not good at patience. Like, how do you develop patience? Like personally, I don't have any. I don't have any, I mean, I, I, I honestly, um, you know, and, and I, and it bites me a lot of times. I mean, I, I, I put the cart in front of the horse, uh, a lot. Um, but I've, I've, I've gotten better with just, I've gotten better with it over time, just based on experiences. But, um, but patience has been something that's been 
really one of the things that I, I've been working on because I, I do, I see opportunity and I might jump on it a little too soon or a little too rash, but, um, but I think I've created a good calculated risk scenarios nowadays. And, um, and I think patience is a, is a big, big attribute to that. Um, and just, just, um, weighing out my pros and cons and then figuring out how to, uh, figure out the right time to move on something, not move on something or to make a good decision. So kind of like decision tree process that you do with that, like what other ways like do you really work on being patient? Um, I, I think it really the main ways that, that I've worked on it is, is just experiencing, you know, experience and success and, and, um, and, uh, defeat, you know, or making the wrong decision. And, um, but I think pivoting has, has become a, a virtue of that. I've just kind of, I've, I've been able to kind of mask situations and, you know, if I made a bad decision, I can, I figured out ways to kind of, um, fix them. So my patient side of it, I, I believe, I don't know that it's that much better, but I've just been able to adapt to it. Um, but there, there have been certainly some times where, um, hanging back and letting things kind of play out. I think I've definitely gotten better with that. And, and sometimes it's, it's cost me, but then other times it's been a, it's been a huge, uh, it's been, it's been very beneficial as well. So you have to tell me then example, like when did hanging back and letting things play out, when did it cost you? So, um, there's been a few times that had opportunities to partner with, um, facilities or, um, there's been a few local places in Chicago that, um, had an opportunity that we, um, that we paused on or we sat back and then someone else actually came in and, and took full advantage of it. Right. And, and they've been successful with it. And, you know, so that, that has helped, that has helped and hurt. It's helped because, you know, we were patient, but at the same time, by sitting back on the sidelines, we, we kind of passed up on an opportunity. Um, but again, I'm, I'm a, I'm a realist and, and I understand that everything happens for a reason. So in the long run, I don't, in the short term, I think I looked at it as it was a bad decision by not acting on it. Um, but in the long run, some of those opportunities that originally felt like a miss or, um, not the right decision, um, really have, have played out in a, in a positive way. Um, just maybe not, maybe not at the time when we realized, oh man, we really should have done that. Um, you know, but in the long run, they usually work out for themselves. Right. Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today. Tune into KukoRadio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station. Play nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at KukoRadio.com. Mike, what um, what question should I be asking that that I'm not asking? Um, I think that um, maybe one of the questions I think I feel like that we get asked a lot is 
um, kind of what's what's next or what's like what do you, what are what are we trying to do? Um, I think those that might be a good question. Like what what's next for us uh, as a as an academy? Mm-hmm. And and um, I think that that's you know we've always kind of laid in the weeds per se, and we've always kind of you know we haven't really thrown ourselves out there uh, to the public. I mean, obviously word of mouth is a big thing for us. People come to us because, uh, someone else has said, Hey, they've had a great experience working with us, getting new clubs from us. You know, their games have gotten better. They develop great relationships. Um, but I think that our next steps is to kind of put it out there a little bit more so that, um, we're, we're known and, uh, and we're really ready. I mean, we, we've been able to, we've had success, on on our levels of being able to handle the people we have um but the fact that we have a lot more people coming into our academies and and we have a lot more accessibility now uh, i think it's the next steps is to keep growing our brand and brand awareness i think is 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 really the next kind of step that that our that our team is has met about and we've um we feel like we're ready for that and um really to kind of get us out there a little bit more. But I, I think that's that's one of the things that is, you know, we've talked about the hinge moments and we talked about the past and the present. Um, but I think the future is, uh, is that's what's coming next. Yeah. So. Oh, I love it. Mike, man, Dacus, Elevation Golf, thank you so much, man, for taking time, joining us. Uh, just really appreciate it. Appreciate you. Dr. Bell, thank you. I appreciate the appreciate the invite and uh, it's been great. Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.